Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Kate Vale founded Alia Via Ventures in 2020 with Marissa Warren on a mission to invest in the highest potential female founders in Australia and America and help them achieve outsized success. And Kate knows plenty about fast-paced scaling, having established Google in Australia and New Zealand, growing revenues from zero to more than 500 million over a six-year period. She then moved on to head up Spotify in the region, being their first Australian employee and managing all aspects of the business growth. After years of angel investing, Kate brings her wealth of experience as an operator and investor to the Alia Via portfolio companies, with a unique vantage point from her home in California to help Australian startups tackle the highly prized US market. Kate, fantastic to see you. Thanks for having me, Catherine. You seem like one of those people, to use an American phrase, that skates to where the puck is going to be rather than skating to where the puck is now. It's funny you ask that because Marissa, my business partner, sometimes describes me as like the the unicorn hunter. (laughs) So putting it into into similar kind of words. Maybe I have a little bit of a knack for that. And then I think some of it has a little bit to do do with luck as well. But, you know, when I think about it from my professional career standpoint, I've definitely found a couple of (laughs) great businesses that I've got onto pretty early. But I've also done it uh, with a number of angel investments that I've done over the years. A couple of those are on track to become unicorns. And then I think also we're just hoping that that will naturally flow on into our fund as well and what we're doing at Alia Via. So winding it all the way back to when you were a young person growing up in Melbourne, sort of how did you make some of those key decisions, you know, what to study at uni, what to do after uni? How did that all sort of happen? Gosh, we're going back quite a while because I'm turning 50 this year, so I don't mind if I I say my age. So in Melbourne, after I finished school, I knew that I wanted to get into some sort of business degree and I was accepted into Monash after initially being told no. And I think I got in on third round offers and did a, a Bachelor of Business. And I think where I wanted that to take me was where my aunt was and my aunt was working in human resources in a law firm, a pretty prestigious law firm in Melbourne. And I thought I did work experience with her and I thought that would be something really cool to do. So when I graduated from university four years later, just with a general business degree, that was the path that I took. And so I started speaking to a number of legal recruiters and a number of law firms in Melbourne. And I landed a job in the HR team of a 
a firm called Purvis Clark Richards, which is now called Gaydens. It was taken over by Gaydens lawyers many years later, actually. So landed in a partnership of around about, I think there was 25 men and, and one female partner and learned what it was like to be a cost centre in a business and not a fee earner. And that was something that was an interesting challenge for me because I knew that these lawyers, were their time was very precious and they were earning money for every hour that they spent and with their, with their clients. And for me, I was literally just a, a support team for them and was actually called a cost centre, believe it or not, back then. However, I did love the people component to it and, and I loved the recruitment side to it, learning how to hire people, building a culture, hiring the right sorts of people and actually working alongside partners to, to be their HR business partner and learn their own individual businesses of which there were 25 plus because they were all very unique and hiring the right type of people for them and helping them build their own little internal culture. And also creating a, a great work environment for, you know, a team of, gosh, there must have been over 100 people in the firm back then. And then at some point after about three years, I had to have that brutal conversation with the general manager of the company or the firm that maybe this wasn't for me. And I had started thinking that maybe it wasn't for me. And he was the one that, that thought maybe based on what he knew, working very closely with me over that period of time, that maybe sales would be a good thing for me to, to look into. So it was kind of when the internet was just starting to take off. It was like 1996, 1997. And I'd had a, a laptop, not a laptop, a big desktop <laughs> on my desk and was just starting to learn all sorts of things like how to email. Um, it was pretty basic back then. I think we were using MS-DOS. And instead of being able to communicate with people within the firm uh, with little an inbox and people dropping internal memos, being able to email someone on the same floor of me was quite mind-boggling actually back then. So decided maybe that this internet thing was interesting and mixed with what I was told potentially was a skill of mine was selling and also my people skills, maybe there was something I could do there. Monster.com had acquired a company called TMP Worldwide. So I went for an interview there because they were looking for HR professionals that understood human resources and recruiting to, to work on their sales team. So I went in for the interview and, and actually really thought that this would be something for me. So I took the job and was working uh, in the Melbourne office for about a year and then a national role came up in the Sydney office, so relocated out of Melbourne, much to my mother's despair. In 1998, I moved to Sydney. I thought it would just be for a couple of years, packed up my car, took my dog, and, and off I drove to Sydney. And I actually fell in love with Sydney pretty quickly. So it's, it's a beautiful city. It was amazing for me to have all of this opportunity, particularly in the digital world back then, that just didn't exist in Melbourne. Sydney was definitely the hub for that. So I worked there for another year or two and my role was actually made redundant. And, and I always tell people, because I've had to do this a couple of times in my career to other people, that redundancy is actually one of the best things and a great turning point for, for people in their career and definitely has been for me. I think it gives you the opportunity to look around and really without your current 
job dragging you down, think about what's going on around you and what really interests you because you have the time to do that. You generally make a a really good decision as to where you're going to head next. And because I was really loving that digital side and I I was actually good at sales, there was an opportunity at, at an ISP, internet service provider called Aussie Mail. So made my way into their media sales team and that's really, you know, the start of the, the dot-com boom in, in 98, 99, only a year later to come crashing down around me in 2000 and, and everything fell apart very quickly. So from making huge commission checks and, and working with some incredible brands online and doing some really interesting things to all of a sudden it was everything dried up. Obviously, that didn't last long and I managed to progress my career from there into a number of companies that were kind of less affected by the the dot-com bust. So moved into a company called LookSmart that was in search. And then that was my sort of foray into into search from there. So a couple of questions. The first is, we often get feedback that women are reluctant to pursue careers in sales and that you can't find enough women to have an effective balance in a sales force. What's your comment on that? Well, when you think about it, I mean, who are you selling to? I mean, I sold to a lot of women and I think women actually prefer to be sold to from other women. And I think that's where I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it before, but I think that's where I found a lot of my success is because there weren't actually a lot of women doing media sales roles back then. It was dominated by a lot of men. And I think it gave me an opportunity to go in and meet with a lot of women that were decision makers in in media agencies and in brands that actually prefer to to deal with another woman. The only thing I would say is that I think some people, and I don't even know if it's just women, are scared by a target over their head. You know, having a number that you have to achieve can sometimes be pretty scary. And if you're scared of failure and you you don't want to (laughs) not reach that, if you can't reach that number, that can be really daunting and scary. However, I loved it and I loved the thrill of the chase. And I actually really enjoyed it if I was near to my number and, and I had to work really hard to, to get it. And the thrill of just reaching your number some months when it was a hard month where it was great. And it, I think it's the sign of a, a strong person if you can overcome a, a tough target and, and win. Having come from a sales background myself, there's a fantastic transparency about sales. You know, you get immediate feedback about whether you're doing well or not. And I think it sort of sets you up to then think about how you can influence outcomes in a whole range of environments that sort of selling is a skill that you can use anywhere, you know, right from your, you know, relationship with your husband all the way through to, you know, the relationship you have with your superiors and the people that report to you. Have you also found that sort of sales experience beneficial in your sort of management roles? Yes, absolutely. And and I think even so, when I was talking before about my HR experience, like that really helped me understand the people component and how to hire people and how to set up teams really well. And then when I got into sales roles, I think that really taught me about not only how to sell myself, but you can use it in everyday life, whether it's trying to sell yourself to a potential recruiter or employer or whether it's you know trying to get my kids to eat their dinner every night to trying to persuade my husband that we should get a dog I think those real persuasive skills 
can come in really handy and always having evidence to back up your opinion or your thoughts. And I think they're great skills to learn. And when you think about it, a lot of really successful CEOs come from sales backgrounds. They understand the business. They've had to be out on the floor working and selling what what the business is all about. And I, I think it's a really important skill for people to learn, regardless of what sort of career that they're in. Going back to LookSmart, I was uh, an investor in LookSmart and it created a fabulous tax planning opportunity for me, given that it didn't end as well as um, I thought it might have. Can you tell us about the experience of that dot-com bubble bursting and then the sort of link from LookSmart to the opportunity that then presented itself at Google? So when the bubble burst, so to speak, brands were shifting their budgets into platforms that they could track effectively. Back then, there was no such thing as a a cost per acquisition or a CPA as we call it, but it was a CPC or a, a cost per click. And a lot of advertisers were used to purchasing media on a CPM basis or cost per thousand. So, if they were buying a thousand impressions on a homepage or whatever, they knew it was going to cost them $65 or whatever it might be. Whereas search advertising was incredibly targeted because they were purchasing like a a category or a keyword and they were only paying if someone clicked on their ad. So that was a great way for advertisers and and media companies to, to shift budget into something that they knew was actually going to work and was more accountable rather than blowing their money on the homepage of, say, a a big pond or whatever and not actually really knowing what's happening with their advertising and not knowing. They might know how many people click on it, but it's really because they're paying on a cost per thousand and not a cost per click, the risk is more on them than with the publisher. Whereas what search advertising could do is just give them more accountability and say, well, we'll give us more accountability. If you're going to click on our ad, it's going to cost you 50 cents and And it's up to you to work out the economics on the back end of that. In terms of thinking about being the first employee in Google, how did that opportunity emerge and and what was the experience like interviewing with the company and feeling confident enough to bring that whole concept to Australia? So it was back in the day when you had desk phones and I was sitting at my desk one day at LookSmart and the phone rang and uh, it was David Lee who was the head of international expansion for Google. And he had said that he'd been asking around about who had search experience and who were some of the great salespeople and my name had come up several times, which is very flattering. And so he asked me if I could jump on a plane in two days <laughs> and come over to Mountain View to interview. So, I mean, I literally would have done anything. I would have cancelled an an appointment with the Queen to do that. So I jumped a lot of hurdles and and managed to get out on a plane and and over to Mountain View pretty quickly. I'd actually never been to America before, if you can believe that. And I spent a whole day after no sleep the night before interviewing in Mountain View. So this was 2002 when Google was less than 500 employees and and in one building in Mountain View. And Charlie, the chef, I was introduced to him and he knew that I was Australian and liked seafood. And every time uh, I went over post then, he would make sure that there was seafood on the menu. But just to give you kind of an understanding of how small the office was back then. So I spent maybe 10 hours in interviews back to back 
with some pretty incredible executives actually that that I learned a lot from in my time at Google and they were intense interviews, but interesting interviews, all the right questions. And I obviously had all the right answers because a couple of weeks later, I landed the role. And I do know there were quite a few people that had flown over to Mountain View for that interview. So at some point in time, I was nervous that maybe I wasn't going to get it, but very happy that I did. And the founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, presumably you had sort of direct exposure with them. How much did their sort of individual personalities shape the the culture of that business in its sort of nascent stage, as small as it was when you first joined? I mean, I didn't have a lot of interaction with them, both very shy, introvert types of people. I obviously had met them numerous times and I had spent time with them at, at Google ski trips over the years. But they definitely shaped the culture of the company and so many things that the company was their beliefs. So, for example, the hiring process at Google, you know, there's a lot of talk about this and the whole process and it just seems so long-winded and there's so many people that people have to interview with and, um, you know, it has to go through a full process of uh, like a country approval, then it goes into Mountain View and then there's an approval over there and, and everything had to be seen by Larry so he would ultimately be the one that would sign off on all of these recruitment packets. And unless Larry had seen it and was comfortable um, and had approved it, no one could actually move through the hiring process. I mean, I took a lot from that in my future roles at other companies that I worked for because I liked that. I liked the thinking behind it. I know it's it was a huge thing for him to do and a big commitment, but it meant that he was hiring the right people. And there were very few hiring errors actually at Google which I did see at a lot of companies after Google that I, that I worked at. There was a lot of hiring errors and having to move on quickly from them. So bringing people on board, knowing they were, they were not the right hire and moving them out pretty quickly. And, you know, there was a lot of their policies and practices that were their ideas. And a good example of this is actually when I was in Squaw Valley with them at one of the ski trips and we were talking about the fact that I had travelled a long way from Australia to be there at the ski trip, but of course I'm going to do that. I mean, who would, who wouldn't? But it's a 15-hour flight. Back then there was no business class. Everyone was in economy. And I, I did kind of say that it's difficult if you're travelling a lot, which I was, between Mountain View and Australia, that it can become quite challenging and, and tiring. And I remember them saying that they were thinking about like a scheme because they were a global company and they they knew that, that they were thinking of a way in which people could earn credits. So it ended up being called trips internally. If I travelled 16 hours quite regularly, I'd earn points and then I could use some of my points if I wanted to, to upgrade. It kind of was, it turned into a monetary value. And that's just a really good example of how they were creative and that wanted to help their employees, obviously, and, and benefit their employees, but had to do it within a tight, why? <laughs> Given the success you achieved in growing the, the business here in Australia and the success of Google globally, it's amazing that you ever left. How did you make that decision to move on to the next role? You know, it's funny, I've got a lot of friends who are still there that I worked with in the early days. So I've got, I've got friends pushing 25 years now. And it is one of those environments that's really hard to leave because you're so well looked after. The work's always interesting. They're really good at promoting people through the system. So if you're a high achiever, you pretty much expect pay increases and promotions during your tenure there. And they're very good at that. It just depends on the type of individual you are. Because for me, 
I realized that going through that whole phase at Google in my career that I loved startup and that my strength was growing a team and building a culture and getting to a point where I could walk out the door and there were processes, procedures, everything set up so that the company could operate really smoothly. And I was not a big company girl and it was becoming so big when I left in 2010 and kind of searching when I got back from maternity leave the second time for what I wanted to do, there was nothing really that I wanted to do there. And and I don't think I'm a big company person and I just was ready to move on. And Spotify was the next opportunity? Yeah. So Spotify came about because one of the early advertisers that I met, who was actually one of Google's first UK advertisers, who I met at a conference in Beijing in 2006, was an early investor in Spotify. And I'd remained quite friendly with him. And he sent me an account across the Spotify and, and said, you should have a play with this. He knew that I loved music. And I did. And I mean, straight away, it was just something revolutionary to me. Being a huge music consumer myself, spending so much money on iTunes and and music downloads. And in the early days, I mean, peer-to-peer music and doing it illegally, which many people did. This was just an amazing way to consume music. and, And I couldn't believe that something like this hadn't been done before. And they were very early days. There was less than 200 employees in Spotify. And I I said to him, if you ever come to Australia, you need to reach out to me because I'd love to work for you. You know, it sort of brought together everything that I love, music, digital and startup. And he called me a few weeks later and introduced me to a guy that was running a global, he was the global CRO. And I'd actually worked with him before at Google, a guy called Jeff Levick. And I chatted with him and he said, I think you should come aboard. I think we need, we could, it's time for us to set up an Australian presence and, and we think you'd be great. So I started there in 2011, again, the, the first employee there and uh, had to, to, to do everything that I did at Google. So set up the office from scratch, hire all the right people, find offices, build a culture, ensure that we had the right product for our market. In music, it's such a complex world and and I learned so much about the music industry very, very quickly. Music licensing is a whole beast in itself. It's not like a Google where you can just enter a market and uh, put google.com.au up and away you go. We had to to do all of these deals with the music labels and and um, those sort of commercial deals take a long time to negotiate. So I was sitting in the background probably for three or four months, actually probably longer than that, maybe even six months before we officially launched. So just making sure that we got the right team on board and that we had the right people to launch Spotify into market when we launched. I think we launched in May 2012. And it wasn't too long after that the US launched as well. The US took a long time to negotiate all of those licensing deals. So there was a lot that we could learn from the US, very similar culture, very similar music market. And uh, we took a lot of those learnings into Australia and and we were able to launch very successfully. And as you know, the biggest music streaming service in Australia now now is Spotify. So happy that I was part of that journey and I hired some incredible people around me and an amazing team. And we just, we loved doing that together. It was a real pleasure. You just seem so fearless. 
the capacity to sort of step into the unknown and the untested, and you've done it again starting your own VC firm. Where does that fearlessness come from? Well, maybe that's what it looks like from the outside. On the inside, sometimes I'm just cringing within. I'll never forget when I started at Google and we launched Google into Australia and I had to do a TV interview with one of the morning TV programs. And I was so scared. I'd never done live TV before. It was like a business interview. And the global head of PR came over to Australia and and sat down with me for two days. She sat with me and we went through mock interviews. I'd never done anything like this before. So I just feel like if you are well prepared, you know, you have to get over those the nerves and that nervous energy, it's awful. But if you know what you're doing and you know that you know more than your audience and who you're talking to, then there's no reason for you to feel not confident. And that was exactly the same at Spotify. And in fact, the day we launched Spotify in Australia, I was interviewed by a very well-known radio station in Australia and they hauled me over the coals. They were talking about piracy and it was Spotify going to be helpful to that? Were we going to make sure that we were not going to be a competitor? We were actually going to help that. And I, I didn't really comprehend the questions they were asking me and trying to backpedal out of that in a really difficult live radio scenario was was awful. I remember sitting down that night, I had, I had two shots of tequila with our global head of communications, <laughs> nearly crying about it, but learned from that day on, actually, that that happened a lot. A lot of journalists were very harsh about Spotify and artists being paid enough and Spotify was not helping that. And a lot of artists were complaining as well that Spotify was underpaying them, which is actually not the case now. When you look at look at how well artists are doing, it's it's like back in the heyday of of the 80s and, and, and CDs, they're, they're making more money than they did back then. So, so I'm fascinated by your capacity to sort of flip from being an operator of businesses to then being an investor and backing other people to build really fantastic global businesses. Were you angel investing along the way before you you flipped over to being a VC full-time? Yes. I think that's one of the real key benefits of working at companies like Google and Spotify and YouTube. So I met some pretty incredible people along the way, all of them quite entrepreneurial, and many of them started their own businesses. And you do go to former colleagues when you're looking for investment if you're starting something up. So my husband and I invested in a few. I invested in a few personally. And along the way, we actually did we did pretty well. And I kind of liked the idea of doing that and backing these founders and watching them succeed and doing what I could do to help them along the way, whether that was giving them advice on people and recruiting and culture and or introducing them to interesting people that they knew that I knew, making great introductions. I really enjoyed that. And so when my professional career, I think, was coming to an end and I just knew that I didn't want to get back into a corporate role anymore, that's how I started thinking. And I actually interviewed with a, quite a number of VCs in California and was thinking maybe I could go in and and help them with a number of startups in an advising capacity. And nothing really came to fruition. And then when Marissa, my business partner, came to me at the start of COVID and and suggested that we do this, it was actually, this makes total sense. I mean, 
I've done startup before. I've learned from some of the best executives in the world. I've scaled companies before. I've, I've invested in companies. I've helped founders. And this kind of marries up. And I feel very, very passionate about supporting women in the workplace. And I understand how bad it is for, for women to find funding, particularly at that seed, pre-seed stage. And particularly when they're pre-revenue, it's a real sense of satisfaction being able to support them and invest in them and see them on an amazing growth trajectory and, and to succeed. It, it feels good. It feels like I'm giving back. You've worked with some iconic founders, so Sergey and Larry and Daniel Eck at Spotify. How much does the sort of pattern recognition of what a great founder looks like influence your investing decision at Alavia? I mean, very different, obviously, with Google and with Spotify to start with their, their men, all men, all techies and all with tech backgrounds and experience. Whereas Marissa and I are actually going the other way. So we want to support female founders. They don't necessarily have to have a tech background. And I think this is so important because there's a lot of women who have great ideas and don't have a technical co-founder or don't have that technical experience, but can still succeed. You know, whether they bring on a CTO later or they they bring on an engineer to help them, it's no need to not fund them. It upsets Marissa and I when we see this time and time again with a number of VCs who just turn away from women because they don't have that technical expertise. And then they do go on and do really well for themselves. And there's plenty of examples of these women that have done that without technical experience. So maybe it's taught me what not to do. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I do like the fact that, and a, and a number of the, the companies that we're invested in are, are real product-focused founders. Like they're really involved in the product. Um, and sometimes I think that's more important than actually being technically focused. Tying together the threads of your personal background, so, you know, experience in sales, experience in excellent recruiting, experience in scaling a business, how sort of hands-on are you in bringing some of that experience to the companies that you invest in? Very. Look, we've only made five investments, so we're still very early days and we're still doing our first close. But you know, a really good example of this is a company that we've invested in called Verbal, V-U-R-B-L. They see themselves as like the YouTube of audio and doing really well and on a great growth trajectory. And so it's obviously media, but advertising and and podcasting. And I mean, it made, and digital advertising made so much sense to me because I, I got it because of my background. And I said to Marissa, we must invest in this company, an incredible female founder, Audra. And then it made sense to me that I've got all these people in my network at Google and Spotify and YouTube who have perfect experience to help her take on the challenges that she's going to face. So I referred Alex Underwood, who is a great friend and colleague of mine who I worked with at both Google and Spotify. And he was just literally coming out of Spotify and I, I introduced them and, and now he's on board as their chief revenue officer and helping them scale to the next level. And that's just one example is another example of a, a company in Melbourne where I've at very early days, a company called How To, the Canva of e-learning and the female founder there is a wonderful lady who really needs someone to help her on the growth side of the business. And I worked with an incredible girl at Spotify who I've just, I've literally just hooked them up and they're, they're talking now and they're both keen to work together. So 
not only is it the value of my network, but it's the value of, you know, I really understand with these startups, the sort of person that they're looking for and the kind of skill set that they're looking for. And I usually have people in my network or people outside of my network that I can be introduced to that can really help them along that journey. And if you were able to sort of define what sort of founder you're looking to talk to, because I'm sure there are so many fabulous female founders who would love to, to have a chat with you. How do you sort of help founders understand what it is you're looking for or who the right founder is for you to be talking with? Firstly, that it's thesis of our fund. So it has to fit in with the thesis of our fund because there's so many incredible female founders out there. And you would know this too, Catherine. It's sometimes so hard. There's so many and I feel bad that I don't get back to every single one individually. Marissa and I have, we're literally inundated with opportunities every day with these incredible women, but they have to fit within our fund and within our thesis. So Marissa's background is all enterprise sales at companies like Microsoft and Workday and mine's all consumer in companies like YouTube, Spotify and Google. So we want to focus in that area because it's what we know best. So whether it's consumer tech or consumer enterprise, preferably SaaS, I mean, because that's kind of what we get and we understand the most and Marissa has extensive background there. And then they have to be in Australia or the US. And if they're in Australia, we really need to see a strong desire to move into the US market because we really believe that's where the opportunity is for growth. So. Yes, it's, it's a lot about the founder as well, but they, they obviously have to fit in with us, our thesis. I love meeting female founders. We met one today, Marissa and I, and we're so keen to take it to the next level. It's real, when you find one and they excite you, it gets your heart racing. You know, you understand that too. I just think that it obviously is, it starts with the founder. They have to be someone that we believe can really scale a business and can take it to the next level and they really live and breathe the product or the, the service that they're working on and there's a real story as to why they are there, why are they doing what they're doing. And then if they fit within those sort of guidelines, then then we're always happy to, to have a look at their deck or have a chat with them. That desire to help Australian companies scale into the US is familiar to you obviously because, you know, you're an Australian living in LA what are the difficulties for expats living in the US and particularly trying to build companies into the US market? So you mean Australians trying to build into the yes. US market? Yeah. Yes. Um, there's so many challenges and that's why Marissa and I like to help along that journey. Uh, the VC world is very different in the US compared to Australia. A lot of them want to see revenue. A lot of them will not invest pre-revenue. A lot of them will only back founders that have got a successful track record or, you know, a significant win in their past. And then there's all sorts of things on the on the economic side of it. So how to do a flip up here and where you register your business and all that kind of stuff that's pretty complex, which Marissa's had a lot of experience with because she has a, a pre-accelerated female tech, tech founders. So she's bought a lot of female tech founders from Australia out to the US. There's a lot to think about if they're moving over here and we just like to think that we're a nice soft landing pad for them and that we can help them on that journey. And the other thing is Marissa and I live here and have an extensive network here now. And whether that's expats living here, uh, we know there's a lot of Australians living here who are doing wonderful things. 
and I actually make it my business to introduce founders here. When I, when I know one's moving over and they're in a certain area, I'll introduce them to someone else that they really should be talking to and someone that I know can give them advice on, on their own journey and maybe give them some tips and hints on what worked for them. For you personally, what are some of the sort of challenges and highlights of living in the States? When I moved here five years ago, I have to say I was pretty anxious. America's really big. You know, there's all these stories about America not being safe and I had two young children and I wanted them to go to good schools and I at the time was managing director of Spotify in Australia and uh, I made the leap over here and Spotify was incredible to me to help me and support me on that journey being here but what was scary is that I had to leave that job and I had to find work here and I was maybe a big fish in a little pond in Australia, so to speak. And here I was a little fish in a big pond and with no uh, reputation or experience and no one, no one knows me here except for the companies that I've worked at before, obviously. So, I mean, I had, I had a great network, but I had no experience here. So I decided to take some time out and that's the benefit of having a husband who also works in a startup and is also doing some interesting things. And we've been able to sort of support each other along the way on that journey. So if I have time out, then he works. If he has time out, then I work. We've chopped and changed along the way. But what it did give me was an amazing opportunity to spend a couple of years with my children. So even though I wasn't working in a, in a corporate gig for a couple of years, I was doing quite a bit of angel investing and I was sitting on a number of boards and I still do sit on a number of boards. And so I was still keeping my mind active, but I had some time to spend with my children, which I think was incredible when you land in a new country and you're all a little bit anxious and about what's going on around you, but you also want to have fun and explore together and, you know, go on road trips and all the things that I just couldn't have done if I was tied up in an executive role and traveling around the world, which I, I'd done for, for so many years prior. And I don't think I really understood how much time I had taken out until I had the opportunity to spend time with them. You know, there's pros and cons to that, but I think one of the biggest pros about living in the US is just the amount of opportunity that's here. When you think about it, we're 10 times or more the population of Australia. Australia is just so small when you've lived here and you understand how big it is here that you really get to, when you go back to Australia, you, you just can't believe that you lived in a country that small when you come back here. And there is just so much opportunity here in the US. And the discussions and conversations that you have with people are just beyond what you could what you could do in Australia. And I never mean to put Australia down because I love it and it's my home. And but I don't know what I'd do if I had to go back. It would be a struggle. I mean, I obviously would remain working on the fund, but I would really struggle with having those incredible discussions out at dinner when I just sit next to someone at a table next to me. And you know, I mean, a great example of this is. I was leaving Bottle Rock, which is a, a music festival in the Napa Valley about a month ago and just ran into a couple on the way out. We just started talking and we exchanged details and I went and had dinner with them. We didn't know anything about each other, but this is the kind of thing you do when you live in a strange country, a different country. And uh, we sat down for dinner and chatted and I told him all about my fund and the next day he'd signed off on investing in my fund. You know, I mean... <laughs> 
those kind of things happen here and uh, people that I've had to work on for six months to try and invest in my fund and then, you know, you just meet someone randomly at a music festival and they're one of our biggest investors. So it's it's great and it, that's those things just happen here. That people piece is really fascinating. Are there any people that are, are real role models for you or who have been mentors for you that have really helped you achieve what you have? You know, I get asked this question a lot about mentors and, I mean, I literally just grab onto mentors at whatever point in my career that I'm on. So when I was at Google, there were people like Cheryl Sandberg that I worked with. She, I worked on the Women at Google initiative with her, so I worked fairly closely with her and really did admire what she did back then. She had a book club, which I thought was random, but I appreciated. And then another lady, Sukinda Singh Cassidy, who was the Asia-Pacific leader, an incredible woman who was very open and honest. And I hold her in such high regard. And I took a lot from working with her. She was real and down to earth and such a, she took being one of the only women on a senior leadership team, she she dealt with a lot and I loved learning from her. And then, you know, if I go back, it's mentors and people I look up to. I mean, my mum, my mum had to give up work early on, full-time work anyway, so she could support my brother and I. And then, you know, my, my dad left my mum when I was in my 20s and seeing her go through that and how strong she had to be and how she had to get back into the workforce full-time and earn her own salary. And, and just seeing her strength, I think I really ad- admired that and I still do admire that and I love her to bits and miss her like anything. And then, you know, today, I mean, Marissa's my business partner, but she mentors me a lot in this space. She She knows a lot about this. And when she said to me one day, Kate, do you want to start a VC together, a venture capital fund? And I was like, my God, I mean, I'd love to, but I feel like I don't know enough. And she said, it's fine. Like, you know how to scale businesses and you're going to be able to help all of our founders and that's your skill set. And I can help with everything else along the way at the start when we're trying to make investment decisions and and we're talking to founders and we're giving them advice on how how to scale at the start. That's all, all stuff I can do. And then one thing that I've just, I've loved since taking this up is I've really taken advantage of my ex-Google and Spotify network. So there's been some people that, incredibly senior people at Google that I've just called on. One example is Jonathan Rosenberg, who now sits, I think he's an advisor to, to the Alphabet company. And, you know, he was global head of product and one of the most senior managers when I was there at Google early days. And I just messaged him and said, would you mind taking a look at my deck and giving me your thoughts? Well, he emailed me back within 30 minutes. We'd made a time to catch up. It was the next day. He tore my deck apart, which I should have known because I think back to the sort of person he was, I should have known. But it was amazing. He gave me the most amazing feedback, very honest feedback, and reintroduced me to some really incredible senior women who he thought might be interested in investing in my fund. And then, you know, some incredible former colleagues who have gone and set up their own venture capital firms and very successful ones, you know, in the billions of dollars um, who have given little old Kate Vale time time of day. And whether it's with introductions or looking at, at our deck and giving us advice, I'm absolutely blown away with how incredible people have been with their time. And I, I think that's a real value of the ex 
Google and, and ex-Spotify network. So even though they're not mentors as such, they, they have given me such, and Marissa, such great advice at a, at a time where we we really need it. And in fact, one meeting we had really changed what we were doing with the fund and we were struggling to raise and based on some advice that, that he gave us, we shifted and changed and we raised incredibly quick. You also have a reputation for being really generous with your time and you managed to fit a whole lot in. You know, you're on the board of a, an Australian listed company, Mogul. You know, obviously work two time zones, you know, Australia and, and the West Coast of the US. How do you fit it all in? Being very flexible with my time during the day. I get up every morning. I'm lucky that I have a nanny. So she supports me enormously with looking after my children. I'm still obviously very involved in their life, but things like doing school runs, checking homework, making lunches are things that I I don't have to do. And I start my morning every morning. I wake them up, say good morning to them, spend some time with them. And then I hand them over and I, I go straight to the gym. And exercise is kind of, one of those things that is so important to me, I exercise at least once a day. So for example, today I've gone and done an F45 class. I've come home, uh, did a meeting, and then I went out and played tennis for an hour. And then that kind of sets me up for the day. And I, ha- I have a lot of energy during the day because I exercise just motivates me and gets me moving. And yeah, I love the results that I, that I get from it. And then because I'm, I have a nanny, I'm able to be flexible in the afternoon as well. So the kids will come home, I'll go and spend some time with them. And then I can come back into my office here and I can finish off the day, whether that's having meetings with Australia or um, sometimes Singapore, actually, because we do have investors in Singapore. And then getting to bed nice and early. I mean, sleep is my number one hack of how to get through life. <laughs> I track it on my my Apple Watch and I'm ridiculously obsessed with with sleep um unfortunately it's one of those things that you just, I do every morning when I wake up is I don't want to assess my day based on my sleep but sometimes that just happens <laughs> yeah so final two questions any books podcasts newsletters anything that you really love that you would recommend I have to say and I really should be more into books I used to be I don't know whether it's since I had kids it seems to coincide with that but I, I really I don't read a lot of books end to end anymore I start a lot and I don't get through them I do watch a lot of content online um, and I love listening to podcasts and TED talks in in the car so where I used to get in the car and have a half an hour drive and listen to music I quite often tune into podcasts or TED talks now I love how I built this I also really enjoyed, and I haven't listened to it for a while, but the CMO podcast, and it really goes, delves deep, um, some of the world's best CMOs at some of the world's biggest companies, but digs deep into the purpose of companies and CMOs setting a purpose of of what their company is there for and, and why they're there. And that really resonated with me. And I love hearing the stories from all of these different companies and their, their, their CMOs. And so CMO's chief marketing officer. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So final question, what are you really optimistic and excited about? The future of women and the future of females in in, in VC. It's still nowhere near where we want it or need it to be. But you're obviously as passionate as I am, Catherine, about this cause, that the numbers are appalling. They can only get better. And I'm so excited to be on this journey and making a difference and help funding 
female founders and really love seeing them on this journey and succeeding. It feels really good and I'm really positive about the future for women. Oh, it's just so brilliant to have someone of your talent and experience applying themselves to the multiplier of seeing other women succeed. So it's brilliant to spend some time with you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Let's do this together. Absolutely. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.